1: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called experts get it wrong. This week, you're going to learn about an exciting new service set up by activists, Radcast, which provides daily and weekly reports on radiation levels around the world. I talk with RADCAST founder Mimi German about how it came about, then hear the first of her weekly nuclear hot seat RADCAST reports on radiation levels in the United States. All that plus our radiation awareness tip, activist shout-outs, and all the news that's fit to podcast, coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, November 12, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. The world continues to focus on the potentially deadly attempt by Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, to begin removing the fuel assemblies at spent fuel pool 4 at Fukushima. Despite international protest insisting that TEPCO is not equipped to do this job, You'll have more about that shortly. The company has, after a brief delay, again scheduled the removal of the fuel rods to begin as early as 10 days from now. There are more than 1,500 radioactive fuel assemblies that were left exposed when a hydrogen explosion blew the roof off reactor four. Now TEPCO is intent on using a crane to begin the delicate and risky task of removing the fuel assemblies one by one from the pool. It is not clear whether or how much they have been damaged, and the break of a single fuel rod has the potential to release massive amounts of radiation into the environment. According to Naome Hirose, the president of TEPCO, we are making our final preparations. The biggest fear, according to TEPCO, is that an earthquake or a tsunami will disrupt the fuel assembly transfer. But in the rest of the world, our biggest fear is that the understaffed, unsupervised TEPCO is running the show. It's evil! Don't touch it! Voices continue from around the world to caution against trusting TEPCO and for the placement of an international team of engineers and scientists to take over this delicate, possibly world-changing job. Former Japanese ambassador to Switzerland, Mitsui Murata, warns of the dangers of the operation TEPCO is planning to carry out. He said in a letter to President Barack Obama, It is urgently needed to set up an international task force to assist Japan by deploying all possible means to reduce the risks of the imminent first unloading of spent fuel from Unit 4. He went on to say the Unit 4 crisis is the most pressing global security issue, and if the worst happens, it will be, as top scientists of the world warn, the beginning of a major global catastrophe. Shinichi Tanaka The head of Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Authority says there are potentially very big risks involved. Yasuro Kawai, a former nuclear plant engineer who now heads a group that is independently monitoring the decommissioning process, says, all I can do is pray that nothing goes wrong. Excuse me, pray? This is nuclear. We need something a little more solid than that. Mainstream media is getting louder and more assertive in its warnings about Fukushima as well. AFP, which is a French news agency, reports that China's deputy UN ambassador Wang Min told a debate on the International Atomic Energy Agency, We urge the Japanese side to spare no effort and provide timely, comprehensive and accurate information to the international community. Wang said the 2011 disaster had sounded the alarm bell for nuclear safety. ABC Los Angeles News simply stated, Fukushima is potentially the biggest ticking time bomb in human history. As we reported last week on Nuclear Hot Seat, Harvey Wasserman and a group of activists delivered a petition with over 150,000 signatures on it to Banji Moon's office at the United Nations. The Secretary General was also previously given a letter urging an international coalition of nuclear experts to take over the job at Fukushima. That letter was signed by Dr. Helen Caldicott, Dr. Alexei Yablokov, Arne Gunderson, and other international nuclear experts. As yet, there is no response reported from either Banji Moon or the United Nations. Beyond the issues at Spent Fuel Pool 4? Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear on RT.com last week said, A great tragedy is that the Japanese government is allowing resettling near Fukushima to happen. Within the closest 12.4 miles of the devastated nuclear power plant, obviously the landscape is contaminated. The food supplies are contaminated. It's up to individual private citizens to figure out how bad the contamination is. So it's beyond tragic. It's a crime, what's happening at Fukushima Daiichi. On RT.com's Breaking the Set, Abby Martin and Alexei Yaroshevsky reported, the cities and towns, which are located just 10 to 15 kilometers, approximately 6 to 10 miles from the nuclear power station, where obviously radiation levels are still very, very high, and even lethal in some cases, Those towns have been reopened for settlers. We literally saw people rebuilding their houses in these areas, and this is creating a huge concern in Japan. In some other areas, 60 to 70 kilometers, about 40 to 50 miles from the nuclear power station, in areas which have never been included into an exclusion zone, we've encountered hotspots of radiation 3 millisieverts per hour, this is the same level as the ghost town of Pripyat in the exclusion zone in the Ukraine, the level which would not allow humans to live in this area. As to here, Corium, where in the world did the melted core of Fukushima reactors 1, 2, and 3 get to? According to Theo Theophamus, professor of nuclear engineering in the UC Santa Barbara Department of Chemical Engineering, Eventually, I think the corium is going to penetrate this vessel, the containment vessel, because already in two of those reactors, the core geometry has been lost completely, and when that happens, there's no way to cool the fuel. The fuel just keeps going down, and eventually will have to come out here. In Three Mile Island, the core came within a nanometer from going through because it was just lucky someone pushed the button and started the pumps and stopped it. I think in this case, at Fukushima, this is not happening. Asahi Shimbun reports a record high level of 710,000 becquerels of beta-ray sources, such as radioactive strontium, was detected per liter of water for the fourth straight day in an observation well at the crippled Fukushima plant. TEPCO said a new leak from the tank has not been confirmed, and they detected 400,000 becquerels per liter at the same well on October 17. So with all of this bad news coming out of Fukushima, what is the government doing? It is doing its best to block our ability to get the information. Japanese Nuclear Regulatory Authority Chairman Shinichi Tanaka has intervened to limit interviews with Fukushima residents over exposure doses. He wants to limit interviews for the media to friendly local government leaders. One of the interviews Chairman Tanaka would have liked to have blocked was with Kieko Shioi, a 59-year-old housewife from Naraha, which is near the nuclear facility. She said, No matter how hard they try to decontaminate, radiation isn't going down. So even though we have decided to go back, we can't. The government is aiming to lift the evacuation advisory for areas where annual radiation doses are estimated at 20 millisieverts or lower. The problem with that is that all over the Northeast, there are radioactive hot spots in unpredictable places. So even though they say an area is safe to go back to, there's no way to guarantee it. Mark Willisey. A reporter with Australian Broadcasting Company says, I've been stunned by the brazen and often clumsy efforts to cover up and lie about the effects and extent of radiation damage. It's abundantly clear many aspects of this epic unfolding tragedy are yet to be written. The nuclear fallout will see to that. Regarding the health issue, the news that we are receiving is the definition of not good. Dr. Shigeru Mita of the Mita Clinic in Tokyo says that according to pediatricians' guidelines, they are seeing children 6 to 12 years old who have a severe depression in the white blood cells of their bodies. This is consistent with the effect of radiation on the body. Dr. Mita reports that in the summer of 2011, he saw many children with bloodshot eyes and dark circles under their eyes. We are seeing more cases of sinusitis accompanied with mild case of asthma continuing for longer periods, he said. When these children spend some time in the West, they get better. If at all possible, I would like them to move away from East Japan. So would a whole bunch of other people. Dr. Mito went on, With elderly people, it takes more time for asthma to heal. The medication doesn't seem to work. He concluded by saying, We also see more patients with diseases that had been rare before. If we see an increase in symptoms that are different from the ones we've seen before, we physicians should first consider the effects of radioactivity. Try getting that through to your government. With so much riding on TEPCO's actions, starting perhaps as soon as 10 days from now. It's important to shed light on the quality of worker available to the company to deploy on site. They also are operating Fukushima Daini, a sister plant just south of Fukushima on the coast, and that is where a worker lost a flashlight into the suppression chamber inside one of the reactors. The flashlight had a magnet on the side to allow it to be stuck to a metal surface, A worker stuck the flashlight to a pipe for the suppression chamber and, oops, there it went through the floor into the suppression chamber. I guess they wanted to shed a little light on the subject. TEPCO, in response, has issued an explanation with a handout in Japanese. And these are the people we are trusting not to destroy the planet. Here in the States, Pandora blew her promise to CNN, and aren't we happy about it? The nuclear propaganda film, which aired on CNN on November 8th, received devastatingly bad reviews, devastatingly bad ratings, and basically was the flop that it deserved to be. Not only did the special fall in third place last night behind both Fox and MSNBC, but the program also fell below its own network cumulative ratings for October and for 2013 to date. That shows a 43% loss in total viewers over the average on CNN. That's what you get for showing something that stupid, CNN. If there is an upside to this, it's that nuclear came to the fore in many people's consciousness, and by the pressure that was brought to bear by the activist community, we were able to get Ralph Nader, Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps, and Michael Brune of the Sierra Club on various programs on CNN. So the anti-nuclear perspective, if not given quite the time and the extent of coverage that was given to Pandora's Promise, At least we got some of it out there and a lot more than CNN would have liked. Here in the United States, more nails keep being hammered into the coffin that is the nuclear wah-wah-wah renaissance. Morningstar investment research analysts conclude in a report this month to institutional investors that nuclear reactors are not a viable source of new power in the West. This report from the Independent Research Company said, Nuclears, enormous costs, political and popular opposition, and regulatory uncertainty render new reactors infeasible even in regions where they make economic sense. This according to Morningstar's Utilities Observer report for November. This view puts Morningstar on the same page as former Exelon CEO John Rowe, who said in early 2012, that new nuclear plants don't make any sense right now and won't become economically feasible for the foreseeable future. The Morningstar analysts call the nuclear renaissance a fiction and a fantasy. A great message to get across to institutional investors. But Morningstar isn't the only one speaking out. Forbes, on November 7th, published an article stating that U.S. nuclear plants are likely to be shutting down in a domino effect. They listed the six nuclear plants that could be next to shut down, including Indian Point, less than 35 miles north of Manhattan on Long Island, Jinnah Nuclear Generating Station on the south shore of Lake Ontario near Rochester, New York, James A. Fitzpatrick Nuclear Power Plant on the south shore of Lake Ontario in New York, Three-mile island in Pennsylvania. Shut it down. Shut it down. Davis-Bessey Nuclear Power Station near Toledo. And Pilgrim Nuclear Generating Station in Plymouth, Massachusetts. That's it, Pilgrim. According to Forbes, these reactors will soon be added to a list of recently closed or scheduled for closure reactors at Vermont Yankee, San Onofre, Kewanee in Wisconsin, Crystal River in Florida, Oyster Creek in New Jersey. And who's next? Come on, guys. Who's next? Get in line. Don't fight. Don't crowd. We can shut you all down. And to put a great punctuation at the end of those thoughts, Dallas-based Luminant, a unit of privately held Energy Future Holdings Corporation, will suspend work to obtain approval to build two new nuclear reactors in North Texas. This the company said in a letter to regulators. Earlier this year, Duke Energy, the largest U.S. electric utility, dropped plans to build new nuclear reactors, two in North Carolina and one in Florida, citing slow growth in power demand and regulatory delay. Didn't expect that it was an attack of conscience. Coast Reporter, a magazine in British Columbia, took on the October issue of Pacific Fishing magazine which in turn took on the unscrupulous activists and web bloggeristas for citing the dangers of eating anything from the Pacific. Oh, wait a minute, they're talking about me and a lot of other people. In turn, the Coast Reporter said that the people who are best positioned to know, senior governments and their teams of scientists, are telling us nothing. Everything is fine, they say, and that's it. It's not enough. The fishing industry needs some damage control here. People need some answers, including real data and real analysis. This patronizing silence is downright irresponsible. On top of this, Dr. Arjun Mahjani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, warned, I would be careful, especially if I were a pregnant woman, about the provenance of my fish. And now it's time for this week's Nuclear
0: Hot Seed. Nuclear hot seed. Nuclear hot seed. None that's the week.
1: Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko has issued a decree to effect a contract for Russia's Atomstroy Export Company to build his country's first nuclear power plant. What, you didn't get enough radiation out of Chernobyl? In case you don't remember, Belarus, adjacent to Ukraine, where Chernobyl was located, received 60% of the radiation from that nuclear disaster. There are still health problems, contamination problems, food problems, all kinds of problems in Belarus because of the nuclear radiation from Chernobyl. But that's not going to stop them from getting one of their own little nukes. Mm-mm-mm. You guys never learn. And that's why the entire country of Belarus, and especially its president, Lukashenko, are this week's...
0: Nuclear hot seat, None that's of the week.
1: Enough of this nonsense. Let's get into the week's interview. Mimi Gurman is a longtime anti-nuclear activist who has been involved since the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. She's part of Occupy, she's part of No Nukes Northwest, and she's been very involved with raising information and awareness about the Hanford site in southeast Washington state. Now, Mimi, along with a group of core supporters, has pulled together the International Interconnective Activists with Geiger Counters to launch. Radcast, a daily and weekly service to provide a verifiable radiation weather report. You got your traffic, you got your weather, you got your radiation report. Makes sense to me. Give a listen.
2: Minnie German, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
3: Thanks so much, Libby. It's really an honor to be on your show. I listen to it all the time. Thank you.
2: So what initially motivated you to become an anti-nuclear activist?
3: It began a long time ago. I'm going to be 50 soon this month. And uh, things began for me back in the 70s when Three Mile Island happened. I lived in Philadelphia, and Mm. I didn't know anything about nuclear power. or I don't even know if I'd ever heard of it. And it was my awakening because it was close to Philadelphia. There was talk about evacuation and what was going to happen and it was scary and i understood that this was a scary thing i could read it in my parents faces i could hear it on the news and i started to delve in deeper into what people were really talking about around nuclear power what i realized was that nuclear power was very dangerous and i started to look into it and realized we have nuclear power plants all over the united states and all over the world and i started seeing this as a teenager and started to do a little bit of research on it, just a little bit, and knew enough to just know that it was bad. And around that time, because of Three Mile Island, the, the movie had come out or came out right after, uh, what was it called, China Syndrome. Mm-hmm. So it started making the news and making the rounds, and then there was a rally in D.C., and I went to that rally, and I heard Dr. Helen Caldicott speak and at least in my memory i heard her speak i'm pretty sure that actually happened and i said i was really blown away by her and i wanted to know more i wanted to hear more of what she had to say she, her passion around the subject was so immediate that we all everybody on that field got how dangerous this was and i knew that i was right in thinking that this is a crazy crazy kind of power that we you know create so that that began my career in this dr
2: caldecott certainly has been the spark that moved me into flame though there was a delay in it for myself but she has been i refer to her sometimes as the goddess athena incarnate because she is a warrior on this and without her our movement would be much poorer and certainly much smaller so you were involved through the years, as an anti-nuclear activist, or is this a more recent manifestation for you?
3: No, I was. I started out as an anti-nuclear activist, and then I was in a. I went to a Quaker high school in Philadelphia, um, Abington Friends, and started to really understand how nuclear power and nuclear weapons were all one, and nuclear weapons came about because of nuclear power, and vice versa, and became a pacifist. And a sort of a a peace worker, and as many of us know, they you know those kinds of fields, peace work, anti nuclear work, it all weaves into one. So I Mm -hmm. was was both of those things. It wasn't strictly anti nuclear.
2: Through the years, you maintained a level of activism. What, if anything, changed for you after Fukushima?
3: Wow. Well, Fukushima, I had a band. And I was on the road with my band when Fukushima happened. And I was, I think, leaving somewhere in California, heading into Arizona. And we had the radio on, and I heard the news. And we had to pull over. I had to hear everything. And I told the band to please be quiet. I needed to listen to this. This was really, really important. And they weren't understanding the level of importance of what was happening in that moment at Fukushima. And I was so freaked out because I just wanted to turn the van around and come home, come back to Portland, because I knew how close we were in proximity to Japan. And I knew then that I I was glued. That's what happened. I was glued to the news. And I realized from the news that we weren't really understanding what was happening. And that's a really important thing to understand, because those of us who were glued to the news and knew anything about nuclear explosions also understood that we weren't really hearing what was going on in between newscasts. So, I was wondering are we hearing everything? What's going on? When's the next update? And that led me to where I am now in the anti-nuke movement.
2: How would you describe or define the activities that you took after Fukushima and this reawakening to the seriousness of the issue?
3: I was part of Occupied Portland and a friend of mine came to me and we started talking about Hanford. I live in the Northwest, and Hanford, for those who don't know, is the largest nuclear dump in North America. Yeah, in the Northern Hemisphere. And we started talking about Hanford and how people in Portland don't know about Hanford. And then I realized how people didn't know about Fukushima either. All of these things melded into one big pot. So we knew that we had to do outreach about Hanford and what was leaking at Hanford from the tanks and going into the river and, you know, all of that. And we also knew we needed to do something in the form of action around Fukushima with getting the word out and looking into monitors and who is monitoring here. And what we found out was crucial in my development as an activist, and that was that not one organization in the government does monitoring and while well, those that do and are set up for it, like the EPA, never tell us what they actually have. If they have anything, and I do believe they have information. Some people don't think they even have information, and I wonder that. It's important to talk about because I do wonder what they have. I wish I knew. I wish we all knew what they had as far as monitoring and what they're getting in, in readings. But what I found out was we don't know anything. We don't know what's in the air from Hanford, let alone Fukushima. Because nobody's monitoring. Certainly my belief is that that is intentional
2: because the news is genuinely so bad that if it were known, they are afraid that people will panic. And what they don't realize is that by withholding information, if indeed that is what they are doing, they're just guaranteeing that when the information finally hits, the panic is going to be magnitudes larger. Because during all this time when people could take steps to protect their health or to change the way they live within their environment, they weren't empowered to do so because they didn't have the information. So there's additional exposure happening that needn't be there if people simply understood the facts, but aren't given the chance to get them.
3: That's exactly how I feel about it. And it's clear. Japan did the same thing and is doing the same thing, the Japanese government and TEPCO. And I think that they're colluding on that, where together they don't say anything until it's three months or five months down the line or a year or two and a half years later when they do tell us, oh, wait, yes, we've known that these these have been leaking, you know, whatever's been leaking, whether it's a puddle, the tanks, or, you know, from the mountain coming down. The radiation's been leaking into the ocean this whole time. But they tell us it's late because they don't want the panic. So, yeah, I think we, you know, we we are the product of zero info. Which is a tremendous manipulation.
2: So, after. Fukushima, you're a member of Occupy. You're extremely cautious about the consequences of the nuclear danger coming from
3: Japan. What actions did you take? We created for Hanford an event. originally was to educate the people in the Tri-Cities as well as make the news so it went out to people elsewhere about what was going on at Hanford. And I believe after speaking with people in the Tri-Cities that they really don't believe that there's a problem. Many of them don't believe there's a problem at Hanford with the, with the radiation that's going out. And that's due to the lies that were put in place um, way back when in the early, early 40s when all of this was being built. It was all based on a lie. And that lie was so important that it's written about. It was talked about by the workers inside Hanford. It was written as graffiti on the walls that had poems about the lies that you don't know what the person next to you is doing and don't ask because you probably don't want to know. So this this came through like it's almost as if it's part of the DNA structure of people living in the Tri-Cities who work at Hanford. So what we did was we created an event called A15, which was on April 15th. And we had speakers come in who knew a lot about nuclear issues. Helen came in and she spoke, and Lloyd Marbet spoke, and he was, he was one of the crucial figures in shutting down the uh, Trojan power plant. A15 happened in 2012. The response to A15 by the community in Tri-Cities was panic. And the reason for that was I had called up, first of all, they refused to listen to what I was saying to them directly. And when I say directly, I wrote letters to their newspaper. And those letters were published explaining what we were going to do, that this was not a rally. This was not a protest. This was a time to educate people as to what is happening. It was a day of education. If anything, you could have called it a rally but that's irrelevant. It was not a protest. We were protesting nothing. What we wanted was to teach people that not only is there a big problem, but part of that problem is is that there's no international oversight that is going on at Hanford. And lo and behold, there's no international oversight with TEPCO and Fukushima. These things are part of the same. They're not separate. They only seem separate due to location. But nuclear power and nuclear problems and nuclear catastrophe, it's all one. It might be Fukushima today. It was Limerick way back when and TMI, and it might be something in France. They're all connected because we're on one Earth. So we need to start to wake up to the fact that nuclear power can wipe us all out, everything, the entire planet. So one of the things that I learned from all of the education that, I put myself through in preparing for A15 with people, talking to my teachers, and I can call them that, and there are teachers, our teachers out there. Helen is our teacher. Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear is our teacher. There are so many people, people who the people listening to this might not know of, Nan and Loki and Deb and Ray and all these people who I know who have made it a point to learn as much as they can because no one else is teaching us these things, have become my teachers. And whatever information I receive, I want to give to you, the collective you, which is the collective us, because we all need to wake up now and recognize that Chernobyl is Fukushima and that Fukushima is Hanford. And it will be the next thing and the next thing. And what all those things are, is complete and total destruction and devastation to our planet Earth. And that's what it is. And there's nothing that anyone can say out there who tries to tell you that nuclear power is okay that makes one bit of sense. Because when the end result of of another Fukushima, of another TMI or Chernobyl or Hanford occurs, we head further and further into the total, total destruction of our planet. There are some who
2: believe that the level of cancer that is showing up in the United States now, I heard Joe Mangano say that 41% of us are expected to get cancer, according to National Institute of Health Statistics, that the cancer rate is directly related to how much radiation has been released already into the environment and the cumulative nature of that in our bodies and the duration since it has been released. For example, U.S. cancer rates started spiking in the late 1990s, and if you count back 12 years, it takes 12 to 15 years for the hard tumors to start showing up after exposure to low-level radiation. If you count back 12 years from 1998 when this spike started, you've got Chernobyl. So much of the cancer that is out in the world now, it is believed by many of us, to be directly related to the ever-increasing exposure that we have to the radiation that's already been released into the environment.
3: I've read much of what uh, Joe has put out, and I've listened to Helen, and I've listened to other doctors, and... One of the things that astounds me is that people, when they hear these things and they hear these statistics, and these are good numbers. Joe's numbers are good numbers. Helen's numbers are good numbers. You know, these are all very real. The cancer rate that is coming is very real. It astounds me that people want to bolster their argument against this. And I just ask them, for what? What is your point? What are you receiving by not admitting that we have a Big problem here due to the radiation fallout now, and that's been, and it's not even from necessarily, yeah, we have numbers that lead back to Chernobyl, but when we go back even further to the bomb tests, Mm -hmm. we have numbers from that. We have numbers from the green one in Washington State where the government intentionally sickened people to see what would happen. And all of those things are in the air. They're all in the atmosphere. They're all up in that jet stream. And they move around and around and around. And we know what that half-life is of some of those isotopes. We can't even imagine how many generations, 250,000 years is a half-life is. How many generations is that? I, I personally don't want to do the math.
2: And we actually don't know if there are going
3: to be generations beyond a particular point. That's right. So what I've come to now at this point is in recognizing that what I think we need to do is... Wake up, create something that I, I happened to have called the other day. I was just kind of thinking about it. It's radical consciousness, as in capital R-A-D, radical consciousness. It's becoming aware, first of all, that there is a problem. And that, that problem here on the West Coast and, yes, on the East Coast and, yes, around the globe due to the ocean currents is going to affect everybody from Fukushima, that Chernobyl still affecting you, that the bomb tests are still affecting you, and they're affecting your unborn children and generations to come. And if we can wake up and we can start to understand that we need radical consciousness, we need to start to say, okay, I can't see what's in the air out there. What's in the air? It's raining. What's coming down in those drops? Or what's in the air when I wake up and it's sunny out? Other than, of course, to those naysayers, regular and normal background, of course. I'm not referring to that. I'm not referring to solar rads or things like this. I'm referring to fallout. And it's time to wake up. It's time to get a grip on what is coming so that you can prevent certain things from happening if there's any prevention to be had. And at this point, there's very little. And people don't want to hear that. But that's a fact. This is a perfect lead into how
2: did you become involved in taking radiation readings and then compiling
3: them? So, in the course of preparing for Hanford's educational rally on A15, I did a lot of research on who is monitoring the air out there and the air in Washington, and the food supply, and the rain, and you know, the river, the Columbia River. And I called many, many, many governmental groups. In fact, everyone. I called the EPA, I called the FDA, I called Homeland Security, I called the ports, I called Senator Wyden's office, and I called many senators on the East Coast. No one knew, not one person in any of these organizations, in these government groups, knew who was monitoring, if anyone. And I wasn't speaking to someone lower. You know, somebody who might not know. I was speaking to management in these places to try to find out the answer because I wanted to know. So when I realized that nobody was taking care of us, because that's what it comes down to, I started to look deeper into who was aware of what was going on and where could I find them. And one day, I came upon a group of people who are citizens around the world who created a page. It's a private page on Facebook. And all of these people were monitoring what was going on. And we had decided here from No Nukes Northwest, which is a group that some of us started during the Occupy days before A15 happened, we decided that we should just take it upon ourselves and get a Geiger counter and start doing this ourselves. We bought a Geiger counter, it's a good Geiger counter. We got there, we started doing readings, I did my research and ended up in a group of like 400 people from around the world who all have good Geiger counters. And we started to communicate, I communicated with them. That was my first merging into a world of concerned people who were doing something about what the government wasn't doing. And it was an incredible, enlightening moment to come together with people who not only cared what was happening, but wanted to understand at a deeper level. And that's what we do.
2: That's what I refer to as having found my tribe, the others who are as concerned, as out of denial, and as compelled to take action as I felt in total isolation after Fukushima, And as soon as that August, I was able to find an anti-nuclear meeting on the West Coast. This was the day after the Muse Conference, so it was people from around the country. I felt for the first time that I actually had my tribe, the people who believed as I did and were as committed to this cause as I was in the process of becoming. What I'd like to know is how this involvement that you had through Facebook with other people around the world who were doing radiation monitoring evolved into the service you have founded, which is called RADCAST.
3: After learning how my Geiger counter works and talking with our group at No Nukes Northwest and really starting to understand what we were seeing, we decided to go to Senator Wyden's office. So a couple of us went, we had a meeting, and told the office, told everybody there that you don't know what's going on because we know that the EPA isn't telling you. So you can't know what's going on, but we know what's going on. So why don't we work out something where we can tell you what's going on in case the numbers are getting high, really high, and let's come up with a number, and if that happens, then I'll call you if you promise to answer the phone and understand that this is important. So we made an agreement that if our radiation counts here started to get to 60 CPM counts per minute, I would call them because for here, 60 at that time was an elevated number that we just weren't seeing. We were seeing numbers here that were much lower, numbers in the 20s. So we thought, well, okay, if we see 60, something's happening. If it continues, I will call. And that happened. And they answered. So we have an open communication with Senator Wyden's office. And what I tell them when they. Say to me, Well, where are we at? And what should we do? I said, we need to tell Senator Wyden immediately that he needs to get back on track with putting together an international group of scientists to help out with Fukushima.
0: So this is what
3: we do. This is the method. Well, we kept doing that, and no word was getting back to widen. And if it was, nothing has been done about it because none of us out in the world are hearing about this, about the international group, other than the fact that it's not happening. So we moved further into the idea and decided, okay, they're not going to listen. Well, what can we do? And I decided one day that what we should do is we should radcast this. It's like a weather report it's like a broadcast but it's broadcasting radiation counts and so we call it radcast
2: and is this local to oregon are you covering the united states or does this extend internationally
3: it started out as an idea for portland and if people were interested in it then i would find numbers that pertained to the area from that media company's location so it started off here, and I decided, well, I know that KBOO, which is our people's radio here, it's people run. I knew that KBOO would probably put it on. That's KBOO. KBOO.fm. And KBU Radio is a wonderful station where, it, like I said, it's the people's station. It's for us. So I went to KBOO, and I said, we need this on the news. I explained what it was, and right away they said, great, let's put it on. And we chose a date, and we put it on. That was as of when? I think it was two weeks ago. Oh, this is very fresh, very new. The idea happened one day, about a month, well, at this point, maybe six weeks ago. And right after that, I started to create the Radcasts, spoke to KABU. KABU said, yes, let's do it. And within two weeks of the idea, it was on the radio. What reaction, if any, have you received thus far? I'm going to start from the people. The first reaction I received was from Kebu, was that there was a caller. Somebody wrote in to KABU saying, I want to know what's going on in my town in Corvallis, which is near Eugene, for those who know Oregon. And that's about three hours plus south of Portland. And she heard the radcast and said, I want to know what's happening down here, and I want to know what's happening in Hood River because I have family there, which is east of here about an hour. And I wrote back to her, and I told her I was so glad that she wanted to know what was happening, and I would get her the radcast from there if I could. And that was dependent and this is important, that was dependent on if we could find people with Geiger counters that, which were trustworthy Geiger counters in those areas. And the answer is no, I cannot find anyone with a Geiger counter. And the only way that I can do these readings is when the information from Geiger counters gets plugged in, and this is exactly why it's a citizen sensor network. This is by the people who have an interest in this, Bringing us the information, we collate that information, we make sense out of it, we relate it to weather, we relate it to all different things, and I create the REDcast. How do you determine if the readings that you do receive are reliable? For the time being, what we do is we ask what kind of meter they're using. We know what the best citizen meters are, we've done the research. We also know what the worst ones are, and there is a Chain. There is a hierarchy of worst to wonderful for us, and right now we are only using the ones that are reputable. Over time, if we decide to use something else, it will be because the programming that we've created in the computer system will be able to recalibrate what's coming in. You know, it's just mathematical. Right now, that's not set up yet. We're in the works, so we just use the reliable counters.
2: Let's get back to the reaction that you have been getting. With this first caller, you discovered that you couldn't provide readings for that area. What other reaction have you gotten in this very short period of time that you've been up and running?
3: On that very same show, it turned out that KABU was interviewing Tom Hartman, and Tom Hartman heard the RADCAST. And I received an email from KABU the next day on Saturday saying that Tom Hartman heard the RADCAST and was interested in talking with us about RADCAST. So I wrote back and said, great, I'm glad you're interested. And Tom interviewed me the following Wednesday. So RADCAST had been on cable Friday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday when Tom interviewed me for his show. We talked about RADCAST. And then I got an email from Tom's people saying Tom wanted to start, I got this email on Friday, the following Friday weekend, saying he wanted Radcast on his show. So we got Radcast on his show on Monday, and I received another email saying that Tom wanted it to be a part of his daily show, his daily news show. So Fabulous. At this point, yeah. So at this point, Radcast can be heard and seen on Tom's show Monday through Friday. This is his RT.com program? His main program, whatever that is, the Tom Hartman News Show.
2: That is a remarkable leap for a service that has been up less than two weeks to suddenly be on a major
3: international reporter's news show. And this is what, on a daily basis? Radcast can be seen and heard on Tom Hartman's show every day, Monday through Friday, multiple times in the course of his show. He reads them. He doesn't read the whole thing at once. He reads pieces of it. I relay the story and the Radcast, and he chooses at the top of the hour which numbers he's going to read. Then he reads them again. I think he reads them four times during every show, every day.
2: That is extraordinary. Now, in terms of the future of Radcast, Where do you see this going? What is your vision for it?
3: We would like to have a complete citizens network of, you know, radiation reports and ways of understanding radiation in your world. So we're working on that now. Eventually, yeah, I'd like it to be on every news show. When I look at the weather report on any news show, I am discouraged when I look at there's no, rad, there's no radiation reading here, and I've been discouraged for two years that it's not on there, thinking about rads in our air. So, yes, I see it there, and
2: I know that it will be there. I understand now that Dr. Caldicott is going to be carrying the radcast numbers as well. Is this going to be on a podcast,
3: or is she reestablishing her radio show, do you know? What she asked me to do was please send her the daily radcast, and she'd like them both for her website to post them there and also to tweet them to her people. I would like to make the offer also, if this is
2: agreeable to you, that radcast provide nuclear hot seat with numbers, and I will feature them every week. I would love to do that, and I would be honored to do that. Radcast is an amazing concept and something that has the potential to turn around consciousness about the radiation that's out there, the nuclear issue, and get a lot more people involved. What I would like to know is what can the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to support you in your efforts?
3: The thing that is most supportive to RADCAST at this point and the thing that will affect the most change for everyone through RADCAST is for everyone, first of all, to recognize that radiation is. It it always has been. It is coming in from fallout. It is increasing in different areas of the world, and it is affecting your life. So what you can do... The most positive piece of action that you can do is buy a good Geiger counter and plug in to the network, plug into our system for you to feel empowered, to take charge of the world that you're living in, to radically wake up. Our website is radcast.org. I would also like to impress upon everyone the importance in calling up your senator, in fact, call up every senator, but call up your senator and tell them that it's imperative to put together an international team of fantastic scientists to all come together to go over to Japan and help with this everlasting problem at Fukushima. TEPCO will never, ever solve this problem. They're not made to do that, and we need some help. So do call your senators, buy a Geiger counter, get empowered, and wake up to this new time in your life that is really going to be ruled by radiation. Mimi Gurman, thank you so much for the work
2: that you are doing, the incredible service you are providing and for being my guest this week on
3: Nuclear Hot Seed. Libby, thank you so much for having RADCAST on your show and for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I love talking to people who are part of what you call the tribe. It's so nice to speak to people who are informed. Thank you.
1: I'm happy to announce that starting this week, RADCAST will be providing radiation readings and explanations for Nuclear Hot Seat. Here's the first report.
0: This is Mimi Gurman for Radcast.org, radically relevant and the first of its kind. This is Tuesday, November 12, 2013. Things are calm today across the states as of last night. Two days ago, we were seeing elevated readings, probably due to the storms in Asia. Frederick, Wisconsin, as always, is slightly elevated at 65 cpm. Phoenix, Arizona is 57, and we're seeing lots of mid-50s across the southwest. For more, here's the list. Fredericksburg, Virginia, 44 CPM. Highs, 48. In West Virginia, we have 52 CPM, spiking at 52. Charleston, West Virginia, 63 CPM. Sharon, Georgia, 47 CPM, spiking at 50. And Huntsville, Alabama, 42, spiking at 47. In Pennsylvania, sinking springs, 54 cpm. Pittsburgh is 45 cpm. Robbinsville, New Jersey, 58 cpm. Into the Midwest, Frederick, Wisconsin, 61 cpm, spiking at 77. In South Dakota, 52 cpm, spiking at 59. Craig, Montana, 47 cpm. Layton, Utah, 49 CPM, high 57. Chino Valley, Arizona, 51 CPM, spiking at 68. Fresno, California, 56 CPM. Kenai, Alaska, 32 CPM, spiking at 45. Sitka, Alaska, 43 CPM, spiking at 49. This is Mimi Gurman for Radcast.org. That was Mimi Gurman and Radcast. We'll be hearing more from
1: her every week here on Nuclear Hot Seat. I want to remind you that Nuclear Hot Seat does need your support to keep bringing you the news you won't get anywhere else. Radiation protection information, activist opportunities, numnets of the week, the NRC DOCK and cover report, and so much more. So if you're in a position to help, you can donate by going to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, Stay on the home page, scroll down, and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, know that it is appreciated. Activist shoutouts. There is a new petition from Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. In it, he asks and allows us to ask that TEPCO be removed from anything having anything to do with Fukushima. You can access this petition by going to a link at nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. It will be under this week's episode, number 125. It's also available at nukefree.org. Here's the other shout-out. John Stewart, I'm waiting. Pick up the phone. Call me, Booby. You need a nuclear pundit, and I am it. You need me, you need my material, you need numnuts, because Fukushima and nuclear are, you should pardon the expression, explosive issues. And you're going to have to deal with them eventually. So listeners, if you know someone who can help get John and me together, do it. Give me the information. Send it to me. Send it to him. You can give him my email. That's not a problem. Info at nuclearhotseat.com. And here's today's final thought. It's all inspired by Pandora. That poor girl let all the evils out of the box and into the world. But we're told in the story that we're left with hope at the bottom of the box. And we are programmed to believe that hope is a good thing. As it inspires the ability to endure all kinds of assaults and injuries as we wait for it to deliver on its promise of a better day. But when it comes to nuclear, hope is a con job, a lie, a trick, flat-out evil. That's because hope conditions us to believe that if we just hold out a little bit longer, against all odds, things will eventually turn out okay. Hope makes us ignore our beliefs and better instincts. It suspends our impulse to act because we don't want to commit the cosmic, karmic gaffe of giving up on the dream right before the thing we want most is going to happen and thus by our actions guaranteeing that it won't hope keeps us dumb mute compliant complacent distracted afraid and locked in place so we ignore the naked little nuclear disaster lurking behind the curtain no matter how hard you hope Things at Fukushima, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Hanford, Sellafield, Kudankulam, Savannah River site, etc. will not get better by themselves. Nothing nuclear ever will. Like any abuser who is used to getting his way, nothing the nuclear perpetrators do will ever change without our intervention. They'll continue, unimpeded, in the direction they've been going, over the edge, into an infinity of loss and take the rest of us with them. Not cool. So let's stay active. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 12, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, nukefree.org, Coalition Against Nukes, New York Times, Japan Times, BBC News, AFP, ABC Los Angeles, RT.com, Asahi Shimbun, Gigi Press, The Manichi, NHK World, Reuters, Australian Broadcasting Company and reporter Mark (gasps) Willisy, Mama Revo Magazine, Simply Info and FukuLeaks.com, World Network for Saving Children from Radiation, Simply Info and FukuLeaks.org, TVByTheNumbers.ZapToIt.com, Deadline Hollywood, CommonDreams.org, Grist.org, CNN.com, Natural Resources Defense Council, Forbes.com, NuclearNews.net, Coast Reporter, The Real News, Costa Rica Star, Daily Mail, VoiceOfRussia.com, org, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community to which you are all invited. Come one, come all. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, Libby B. Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved! But I do allow fair use. So you've got my permission to reuse this material as long as you provide proper attribution, meaning me, website, and email. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.